So welcome back. We're in week two of James, two of ten. Last week we talked about the testing of our faith and how God uses that in our lives to bring us to greater faith and greater trust in Him. This week we're wrapping up chapter one. James is going to be talking to us about what we do uh, without faith and what it means to kind of have faith and what true faith and false faith is. Um, So we'll pray and in in the theme of James we'll get right to it after that. Father God, thank you so much for gathering us here together in this place. I pray for those of us who couldn't make it this morning, uh, for one reason or another, be it weather or health or whatever it may be, that you would be with them and comfort them, uh, and, and that you would um, bring them to a place today, Lord, where, where they are encouraged by, uh, by other believers or by you um, as well. Uh, help us this morning to understand your word, to take from it what you mean for us to take from it, uh, and that uh, it would be something that impacts our lives and helps us to move forward and do the things that you've asked us and told us to do. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So James 1, starting in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Because the beauty of the book of James is that, I mean, he cuts right to the chase. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, and if you were here last week, you know, and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Okay, I'll pause there for just a moment. One of the verses that has been on my heart for the last few months, I just can't get it out of my head, is Colossians 4, verse 6, which says this. It's very similar. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Now, in that context, Paul is specifically referring to outsiders, specifically referring to people who aren't Christians and how we talk with them. But the principle we find in Colossians 4 is the same that starts out here in James 1. James encouraged us to be quick to hear and slow to speak. There's an old joke that that says that God designed us with two ears and one mouth for a reason. We're supposed to listen twice as much as we talk. James says we're quick to hear, slow to speak. Paul in Colossians says that our speech must be gracious and seasoned with salt. You can't have gracious speech without understanding of the point of view of the person you're speaking with. In other words, you can't speak graciously without having listened well first. James is building a bit on what he said last week. He's building a bit on the idea of wisdom. Verse 20, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's not familiar. That's not maybe like James has read Jonah. 
Right? Jonah chapter 4, verse 4, went through it a couple weeks ago. God asks Jonah if he does well to be angry. Is this getting you anywhere? Just a thought here. James isn't telling us not to be angry. He's saying be slow to anger. Be angry for the right reasons and use that anger to motivate you to do something about the thing that made you angry in the first place. Verse 21, therefore, here's what James is driving at. Here's, here's his point. Here's why, it's important, here's why it's important to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James is encouraging us toward meekness. He's encouraging us toward humility. This must have been an incredibly difficult passage for James to write. You know why that is? Verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Now you've been around here for a while. You know that whenever the New Testament uses the word word, I always stop. Because there's two words in Greek that mean word in English, right? Anybody remember what they are? Putting you on the spot now. Logos and rhema, right? Rhema is that spoken or written word. It's, it's, it's specifically language. And logos is the more kind of a philosophical idea of it. And almost always in the New Testament refers to Jesus Christ personally. So remember who Jesus Christ was to James. He's his older half-brother. Imagine how hard it would have been for Jesus' own little brother to write these words. Receive with meekness the implanted logos. Receive with meekness the indwelling of Christ, which is able to save your soul. First paragraph here is the basis for what James is going to be talking about for the rest of the morning. He, he builds off this idea of, weak, of wisdom from last week. says wisdom is quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and receives with meekness this implanted word. Receives the gospel with humility because it is able to save our soul. So the first paragraph is evangelistic, really. James wants you, he wants his audience to believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus. Now, starting in verse 22, he's talking to Christians, specifically. Right? If, you're, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're not a believer, you can pretty much stop at verse 21, because the rest of it isn't going to be much good to you yet. But if you're a believer this morning, you've got to really start listening carefully at verse 22. So here it is. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, that's rhema, anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he was like. Okay, so back up a little bit. What's James's point? Verse 22, be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. Remember I said last week that there's parts of James that don't need to be interpreted? This is one of them. James doesn't want you to only be a hearer of the word. Don't just read the Bible to read the Bible. He wants you to do what it says. Be doers of it. He wants you to hear those things and go out and do what they say. Then he goes a step further. He says, if you don't do that, if you're not a doer of the word, you're only a hearer of the word, you're just lying to yourself. You're just deceiving yourself. If you're a Christian, if you, if you call yourself a Christian, you don't live your life Christianly, if I can invent the word. James would say, guess what? You're probably not really a Christian. 
You're probably not really saved after all. You're, you're just lying to yourself. James says that, but thankfully he doesn't just say it. He gives us an example of what it looks like. Verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So you're looking at your face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he looks like, what he was like. I love that picture that James paints for us. Right? Because in the first century, I mean, mirrors weren't a common, like you didn't have a bathroom mirror made of glass and mercury or glass and aluminum. It just didn't happen. It was polished brass or very expensive. Not everyone had one. So to know what your face looks like is kind of a, kind of a luxury in the first century. <laughs> so the, the, this, this picture that James paints for us of the person who reflects on themselves, knows who they are, knows what they look like, hears the word but doesn't do anything about it. It's, it's kind of you know, someone who looks at yourself intensely in a mirror, and as soon as you leave, you forget what you look like. In other words, James is saying, if you're a hearer of the word, not a doer, you're like someone who knows their own sin incredibly well. Right? Like, like you know yourself well. Like, you know, I know I'm angry. I know I struggle against anger. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. I struggle with busyness and being busy and schedules and, and time with my family and time with my friends. And I struggle with finding rest, with finding Sabbath and, and balancing work and Sabbath and rest. And, and I'm prideful and I struggle with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm lustful and I struggle with, with that. Someone who knows that, like you know that about yourself. You know what your sin is. I know what my sin is. <coughs> Someone who knows that very, very well, knows their sin, might even reveal that sin to others in a small group or a Bible study or a conversation with another brother or sister in Christ that you trust. You know yourself that well. You know your sin that well. And then you go away from that time of self-reflection, knowing what the Bible teaches, knowing what it says, knowing you're in sin, and then nothing happens. Nothing happens. Changes. I'm not talking about slow and steady growth. Okay, like, like I'll, I'll, I'll share one of mine with you. Um, for my entire life, I've, I've struggled with, with anger. Not an uncommon thing for young men, but for my entire life, I've struggled with having a short fuse. And by God's grace, I mean, for the last three years, you guys have known me, not nearly as short as it was 10 years ago. But that fuse gets a little bit longer. It's not a big, it's not one big jump. It's slow, steady, Sometimes agonizingly slow growth. Just ask my wife, she'll tell you. But it's, I'm not talking about slow, steady growth. I'm talking about nothing. I'm talking about stagnation. And that's what James is talking about as well. The Word of God, the Bible. When it's read, when you either read it yourself or you have it read to you or you listen to an audio version or, or even preaching like what I'm doing now. When it goes into your ears through your head and into your heart its purpose the reason it exists is to change you if you're not a believer its purpose is to change you into a believer if you are a believer the word of god still changes you it changes you from someone who is redeemed and blameless in the sight of god that's justification into someone who is conformed into the image of christ someone who looks more and more like jesus every day someone who acts more and more like jesus every day now, that's, that, that, that might be God's work. It is God's work, but it does require an effort on our part. It's called grace-driven effort. That's the word we have for it. 
Most people, the changes God wants to make in your life need effort. I'm not talking about merit, right? I'm not talking about works-based righteousness. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. I'm not talking about that. That's already been done. I'm talking about after that, when you're being sanctified, when God is changing you into a closer approximation, a better image of his son over the course of your life. That's, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, God doesn't just flip, flip a switch and all of a sudden you look like Jesus and you act like Jesus and you walk and talk like Jesus. It doesn't work that way. For most of us, it requires effort on our part. Slow, steady, prayerful, grace-driven effort. It's motivated by the grace of God. But the realization that God saved us, that our desire to worship him is better and more, right? That's, that's, the, that's what drives us to change like that. That's grace-driven effort. The work is done by God, but we put the effort in too. So remember that term, grace-driven effort. It, it's going to come up quite a bit in James. Verse 24. James gives us this picture of the, the self-reflective person who does nothing to change himself, even though he knows what his sin is. He's confronted with his own sin. In verse 25, he gives us the contrast to it, the goal, if you will. Verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. One who looks into the perfect law, the one who knows the scripture, who knows himself and reacts when scripture is at odds with him. When scripture convicts him of his sin. The one who perseveres in this. Who acts when action is required. He will be blessed, James says, in his doing. The effort you put in will be blessed. I love that. James says you'll be blessed in your work when you work at improving yourself by God's grace. When you work as a, as a co-laborer with God and the Holy Spirit, when you work and you're a part of your own sanctification, a part of your own growth, an active participant in your life, God blesses you in your doing. I love the way James puts that. Because God can't bless our work if there's no work to bless. If you're not doing anything, how can you expect God to bless the thing you're not doing? James says you can't. You just can't. Because God blesses grace-driven effort. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, so we've been talking about so far, then this person's religion is worthless. Here's where James gets really harsh. If you are this person, if you are a, a hearer of the word, but not a doer, and you know it. If you have no interest in improving yourself through grace-driven effort, you have no intention of being a co-laborer with God in your own sanctification, you have no desire to have the abundant life that Christ calls us to in John 10, on this earth, while you're breathing this air, if you're just waiting to get on the bus to the new heavens and the new earth after you die, then James tells you your religion is worthless. Your faith is misplaced. Showing up at church on Sunday and even doing things in the church, with the church, within the church, for the church, means nothing if you don't do them 
Sorry, if you don't do what the word says. If you don't love the Lord with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you're only a hearer of the word, not a doer of the word. I mean, this is Matthew 7, 23 in stark contrast. When Jesus says, Be gone, for I never knew you. To people who have been doing ministry, casting out demons in Christ's name. Then they meet him and he says, I don't, know, I don't even know who you are. That's a sobering verse. I tell you, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy who hears the words, uh, look, thanks for doing all that stuff for me, but I don't know who you are, so get out of my presence. I want to hear the other words. I want to get there and I want to hear my Lord say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter my rest. Something else about that verse. You, you can't be a good servant if you don't serve. You, you can't be a, a doer of the word if you don't do. James is pulling out all the stops, not because he wants to be mean, and I'm not repeating them because I want to sound mean this morning or sound harsh. And I don't want to sound harsh, but it's, it's what the word says. It's what James says. It's a difficult word to hear sometimes. But the Bible says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. So if you're wounded this morning by what James said, you should should know that there is no greater friend to you than the Scriptures. So I would encourage you to believe that the wounds of a friend, the wounds you have, are faithful. If you're only a hearer of the Word and you're not a doer of the Word, if you're not a co-laborer with God, the Holy Spirit in your life, then James says your religious devotion and your religious theater is worthless. If you have no interest in becoming more and more like Christ in obedience to him and in obedience to his word, the Bible, then, then just stop coming to church. Just stop coming to church. Stop lying to yourself and find something more fun to do on a Sunday morning. Now, my hope for you is that that's not true. My, my prayer for you is that if you realize that you are this morning just a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, then you would repent from that and become a doer. You would turn to Christ and become a doer of the word. Or even if you're just conflicted about it. You know, I, I want to be a doer of the word, but I don't really know if I really want to. Is that, is that really my heart or is it just devotion? Is it just the same useless faith that James is Talking about, is it just guilt? You know? Then I would encourage you to, to, to do what James said to do in chapter 1 and pray for wisdom. Because I'm pretty sure if, you're, if that's you, if you're conflicted like that, I'm pretty sure that, that the interest is there. It's just buried by something. You're being fooled by something or someone else. Finally, verse 27 the book of James is an intensely practical book, and James isn't going to leave you on a Sunday morning without an example of what, what you're to do with your faith now that you're a doer, not just a hearer. So he says this, religion that is pure and undefiled for God the Father is this. So here's what he's saying. You, you want to be a doer? Here's what you do. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and keep yourself unstained from the world. Now, if you were here this morning, earlier on, we talked about um, cultural forms in Scripture and, and how that impacts how we read the Bible. This is one of them. Two things here, we'll wrap up. James talks about keeping yourself unstained from the world. That does not, it does not mean withdrawing from the world. It doesn't mean cloistering yourself away from the horrors and the dirtiness and the filth of this world. It doesn't mean going into a monastery and spending the next you know, 40 years of your life wearing a brown robe and having a funny haircut. That's what it means. Because we have a God who rose above that and dwells within us. So James isn't talking about going to a monastery and dragging your family behind you. So that you can stay away from the world to remain pure and abstaining. What he's saying is, don't give in to it. Don't submit to it. Don't let it rule over you. That's the stain. Remember that Christ is better. Remember that Jesus is greater than that sin that is tempting you, whatever it is. Remember that he was tempted like you too, and he resisted. And now he lives within you and gives you the power and authority to resist as well. Don't avoid the world. You can't serve it if you're not part of it. Paul says it differently. He says, be in the world, but not of it. It's the same thing as be unstained. Don't let it get to you. Don't, don't submit to it. We still need to be in the world because the world still needs Jesus. Second, when James talks about orphan and widows, here's the cultural form. He's expressing care for a group of people who have no means of support of their own. Right? That's a widely held view, uh, virtue in the first century Jewish world. Take care of orphans, take care of widows. These are people um, who can't repay you. These are people with no means of support. Right? Today, widows and orphans are not as poorly off as they were when James wrote this letter. Surely it's not ideal. Surely it's still tragic when it happens, but they're not nearly as badly off now as they were then and it's all and caring for them is not one of the highest virtues when it comes to our culture so i wouldn't use that example today but the overarching concern that god has for the poor and for the distressed and for the cause of justice is the core of what james is getting at this morning and orphans now are mostly cared for within the social safety net that we have in our country. I have a friend who, in college who was an orphan and he got a check from the government every month. They're, they're cared for by our country. So, so what do we do with this then? What, what is pure and undefiled religion now? What group of people are those that James would mention now if he was writing today? Who are the people who have no voice? Who are the people who have no support? How can we help them? I'll give you a couple of examples. The biggest one, the one that's biggest on, on my heart, is, is human trafficking. Many, many people think that slavery has been abolished in the world, but it hasn't. Nor has it even been abolished in our country. There's a modern slave trade that is alive and well in our country, and even in our area. We're not immune Young girls are abducted sometimes from foreign countries and brought here sometimes from our own backyards and they're forced to work in the sex trade. 
in cities like Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, all over the place. Not just the big cities. They're forced to work in, in the pornography industry, if you can call it that. Caring for them. Finding a way to help them. Finding a way to care for them. Finding a way to stop the trade in people. I think is something James would talk about if he were writing today. Caring for the homeless. Caring for underprivileged people. Caring for people who cannot care for themselves. Caring for these girls. Caring for people who can't pay you back. Who won't be able to repay you. Who won't be able to return your kindness. That's what James called pure, undefiled religion. That's what James calls being a doer of the word. God the Father and the Holy Spirit went through a lot of trouble to get us this book. It may not have been particularly difficult for them. It's still a lot of work. It has survived for thousands of years and has been completely trustworthy all the way through. Even though he chose to use human hands to do it all. A couple of weeks ago they found um, a piece of parchment inside of a of an Egyptian mummy mask. Uh, the, the, the poor people, like the rich, rich people, sarcophaguses, sarcophagi, had, they were made of wood and gold and other things. But if you were poor and Egyptian, you, still, you were still embalmed, so they still, you still made a, a, a death mask, and they used, they used paper mache. And being that they were Egyptian and didn't have any attachment to the Christian God, they didn't have any compunction with using Christian scriptures to do it. So they pulled out a fragment out of an Egyptian mask found in Egypt that had a fragment of the Gospel of Mark on it, which is not in and of itself very impressive. What's impressive is that it's incredibly early. We're talking like 50 AD, less than 20 years after the death of Christ. And here's what they've found so far. It's consistent with what we have in our Bibles. It's consistent. God has preserved his word. He's gone through a lot of trouble to do it. Whatever translation you're using doesn't, doesn't matter. It's consistent. It's what God wants you to know. It's the book that tells us how to live our lives, how to guide our lives, what's really important. How do we love God? How do we serve God? How do we love and serve his people? So we must be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Otherwise, we're lying to ourselves. And if you're lying to yourself, don't even bother trying to lie to God. It's just not going to work. He's smarter than you. (laughs) But be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. And practice your religion. Serve those who can't possibly serve you back. Look for ways to do that individually. Look for ways to do that in your home, in your neighborhood, in this town, in this church. Together with us, we have to find ways to serve those who aren't a part of our group. Who don't sit here on a Sunday morning. Because it's only when we serve them and love them selflessly when they learn that they can't pay us back. Not that we don't want them to, but that they can't pay us back. We tell them that. 
and that there's nothing they can do about it, whether they want to pay us back, just, you, there's nothing you can do about it. That's when they will ask us, but why are you doing it? Why? Why are you spending all this time and effort on me if I can't repay you? That, 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 that doesn't happen in our culture anymore. When we get asked that question, that's when we can give them the gospel. Because someone did it for me. And because as much as I'm doing for you, someone wants to do more. They want to save you out of yourself. They want to make you a part of their family. We want to make you a part of our family. That's when we tell them about Jesus. That's when lives will be changed. That's when hearts will be changed. That's when the kingdom of God becomes just a little bit more crowded. Let's pray.